This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. I think that we might see the fall of theocracies, especially Iran would definitely fall, and this freedom and maybe more of a momentum in that direction. This might be the end of what Muhammad began very well in the 7th century. Check out the huge selection of Strange Planet merchandise in my online shop. Go to strangeplanet.ca and click on Shop in the menu or find the link in the episode notes for this podcast. At my Strange Planet shop, you'll find unique men's, women's, unisex t-shirts and athletic shirts, leggings, tote bags, mugs, neck gaiters, and stickers and more, all emblazoned with amazing artwork designed exclusively for my Strange Planet shop by artist-illustrator Rick Forgus. If you're a fan of Strange Planet, why not show it off? Go to strangeplanet.ca and click on shop or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click on the link. It's a strange planet. Dress for it. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Wednesday. Our recent events in the Middle East leading us towards the fulfillment of a prophecy revealed in Ezekiel 38. Here to discuss is Ali Siadatan, the founder of Think Again Productions in Canada, a multimedia teaching ministry shedding light on mysteries and treasures of scriptural knowledge, which is making the Bible more real than ever. Ali, welcome back to the program. How are you? Thank you uh, very well. Thank you, Richard, for having me. My pleasure. So what does Ezekiel 38, 39 actually say? Um, yeah, th- this is a very interesting prophecy. Um the, it, it speaks of a conflict, a, a war uh, against Israel, and there's many different tribes that are named, and all of these tribes are taken from Genesis chapter 10, where the foundation of how the Bible understands the root of all the nations is explained. The 70 sons of Noah form the basis of all the nations from a biblical point of view. And so this prophecy takes from the tribes that are mentioned in Genesis chapter 10, creates an alliance for us, puts them against in a battle against Israel, and, and gives us a ton of information about this event. And this event has never actually occurred in the known history of Israel. And at the time where Israel existed as a nation in the land from the time of you know King David and uh, Solomon all the way to even before that, of course, you know, from the 13th century. Uh, BC, but all the way even to the time of Rome, this never occurred. So the idea is that this could now happen because 
there is a Jewish presence, there's a nation, and these prophecies can now be seen literally, uh, even though for centuries they couldn't, but now we can, and perhaps they inform us about some, maybe God has left these clues for us for a reason. Um, then in the scroll itself, I think there's a context, it's the surrounding chapters. What we read, this is chapter 38, but if you look at chapter 36 and chapter 37, leading to chapter 38 and 39, where this war is described, chapter 36 is a great prophecy about a return of people to the land, the rebuilding of cities, of farms, of fields, kind of a blessing returns to the land as the people return to it. It becomes fertile again. And so people see, well, that in a way has already started. It completes under the Messiah, but it's already started. And chapter 37 is a valley of dried bones where, uh, you know, he, uh, he sees, uh, Ezekiel sees these valley of dried bones and God says, look, and the bones get up, and then they get flesh and bone given to them, and then finally the breath of life. And it does the, has the feeling of something that has come back from to life from the dead. Some people say it reminds them of the bones of the Holocaust and how the nation was born out of it, like the dried bones of Holocaust became a living nation. I, I think more generally speaking, it's talking about kind of, uh, you know, something that was left spiritually and even you know, physically for dead, like was, was written off, you know, and, and suddenly Israel is back and even spiritual awakening and even, you know, the connection to God and the, even the Messiah, uh, because the Bible kind of tells us when the Messiah and, and, and his people and the land are united, then there's peace among the nations. So these things are the context that is around this, that it seems to be an end time, you know, prophecy, because the end times is a time where, you know, there's this resurrection from the dead and the redemption of Israel. And then there is this massive return to the land that 36 describes. Ironically, I don't know if people know this, but, you know, when you look at, for instance, if you ever to go to, to Tel Aviv, you know, the this, this settlement that has become like, you know, the capital of the modern state, even though Jerusalem is the capital, but, you know, Tel Aviv is like the marine urban center, like the New York. Um, it started, it was named that because Ezekiel, who wrote chapter 36 and who was in exile in Mesopotamia in modern-day Iraq, he lived in a city in Iraq called Tel Aviv. Ah. And the idea was that, you know, his prophecies, uh, his promise written in exile because the book of Ezekiel was written in exile and it foreshadows a great return to this land. And now these settlers were coming to the land and they remembered the ancient dream and promise of Ezekiel and tell in Arabic and, and in Hebrew, I think as well, but in, in, it's used in the Middle East and all of Israel. It means mound. All of the archaeological mounds are called tells. And it's like a mound that has ancientness underneath it. But Aviv means spring, like a spring of water that comes out of the ground, which symbolizes new life. So ancient, a tell, Aviv, a modern living spring, and it was the place of Ezekiel's life who wrote the dream of this return. So they decided to call it Tel Aviv. That's where the name came. Fascinating. From. Yeah. And so in the context of these passages, we suddenly, it's as though they start to come to this land and then this war occurs. So that's the feeling even textually it's around the prophecies of these things. So I think it is talking about a, a war that is in the future of Israel. The countries that are mentioned in this battle, Persia, Ethiopia, Libya, who else? Okay. 
So it says that there, the character who's the leader is, his name is Gog. And we also see Gog in the book of Revelation coming, Gog and Magog, a thousand years after the reign of, you know, Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, after his reign on the earth, we see Gog and Magog attacking. And so it's like, okay, well, how can Gog and Magog be here with us in our time and be also here a thousand years from now? What nation could, you know, exist a thousand years after Jesus returns to the earth and salvages them, the Santa Kingdom? So obviously, first of all, it's important to point out that somehow uh, Gog uh, um, and of the land of Magog is also seems to be a symbol for, you know, a dark force. You can call it maybe, you know, Satan, maybe something that's got really the spirit of the Antichrist. Gog doesn't seem like a human name. Like, you know, I've never heard of a guy called Gog. Oh, yes, yeah, so I thought to call my son Gog such a nice biblical name. So there's something about Gog that I think points to the supernatural for me. Well, don't they call, isn't Gog in Ezekiel referred to as the chief prince of Mesach and Tubal? Yeah, and we know that there are these principalities, like there's the prince of Persia, there's the prince of Greece. We know that there are these spiritual forces that, you know, we fight. So and could so- Gog be a, a fallen angel? Yeah, or and, or and then he could have a Nephilim representative because that's how they rule and move. But it's important to notice that, that this character appears a thousand years after Christ comes to the earth as well, right? Um, so he's the chief prince of these particular tribes, Meshech and Tubal. And as the list goes on, it you know, it, um, when you kind of look at like chapter 39, where it lists also these, it says he's the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. And it talks about the mountains of the extreme north. And then it talks about a list of other, you know, characters. And in these, you also see Gomer and Togorma. So I want to focus on these four first, Meshech, Tubal, Gomer, and Togorma. So when you go back to Genesis chapter 10, where these guys are mentioned first, you'll see that all of these four characters they are the sons of Japhet. That's how they first are introduced to us. Gomer is the son of Japhet. Meshech is the son of Japhet. Um, and Magog is the son of Japhet. Gomer, Meshech, Tubal, and Magog are all mentioned in the book of Genesis, chapter 10 for the first time. And they're mentioned as the sons of Japhet. And I'll just read it to you. Japhet's sons were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, Tiras, and Gomer's sons, Ashkenaz, Rifta, and Togorma. Togorma is mentioned. So Togorma, one of Gomer's sons, is mentioned. And we have Magog, um, Tubal, and Meshech mentioned. So Let's start with the one that's easiest to... Uh, Sorry, you mentioned Japheth. That's the son of Noah, right? One of the three sons of Noah. Yes. So these are Noah's grandchildren we're talking about. Exactly. These are Noah's grandchildren. They, it is by their tribal identification that the prophet Ezekiel points to the nations. It, these are nations that go back to these specific grandchildren of Noah. The nation that began by Magog, by Gomer, by Tubal, by Meshech. And so, and then there's 
Gomer's son to Gorma. So, so Noah's great grandson is also included. In All right. Would these would these correspond with yeah. any current countries that we know? Yeah, they're they're clearly regions of the earth. So, where did Japhetites like you know set up shop? The Japhetites essentially set up shop in the north of Iraq, kind of like where the Kurds are right now. Um, in the the Aegean Sea, like you know where. Um, uh, you know, the Greece, when you look at Greece, you see like they, they, they circled the Aegean on one side, it was Athens and all those guys. On the other side was what's the Turkish side, eventually the Asia Minor. So the sons of Japheth settled there, like Jovan is mentioned here as one of the Japheth sons, and that's where he settled. So you've got kind of like Asia Minor area settlements. You've got north of Iraq settlements. Then you got into the Iranian plateau because it mentions, not in this prophecy, but Madai was a son of Japheth. And he settled in the Iranian plateau. And from there east towards Afghanistan and all the stands, right? Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, all of these stands. Uzbekistan, right. Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, um, Afghanistan, I guess, is in modern stand. But these stands, so that is where we see uh, Tugorma. So, for instance, here we have Tugorma mentioned in the Ezekiel 38, 39. And Tugorma is the father of what became Turkmenistan. And that is where the Turks are from. They moved in the Middle Ages to Anatolia, uh, you know, about a thousand years ago. They moved from Turkmenistan to Anatolia, to what's modern-day Turkey, and they gave their name to that area of the world, Turkey, and they conquered all the tribes, and then they set up the Ottoman Empire. But that's where they came from. Right. They came right. from Turkmenistan. So, so just sorted out who's fighting who here now. All of the sons, the, the tribes that were. So from... these are Japhetite tribes mainly. So they kind of go right. from stands to the northern Iranian plateau into Asia Minor. Right. And who are they fighting? Iraq. And that's why they call, that's why we call the language Indo-European. People go, why is it called Indo-European? Like Sanskrit, you know, Persian, Latin, Greek. Right. Because there was a Japhetite tribe occupying this entire area from the Hindus Valley to the Asia minor ah. coast that spoke one language before they fragmented into all these families. And that's why it's called the Indo-European, you Got know, that's what the secular guys called it, but that's Japhetite. So it kind of gives us, first of all, a part of the world to work with, right? Right, right. Then it mentions the extreme north. It says they come from the extreme north. And I was really thinking about that today. And, and I think it's very important to understand what that meant in the language of the time of Ezekiel, like a Jewish guy like Ezekiel, saying extreme north, like what did that mean to him? Um, it meant what we would call the east, because when you stood in the city of Jerusalem, the great empires of Mesopotamia, Assyria, Babylon, these great conquering empires, they were considered to the north of Jerusalem. That's how they spoke of it, because the, you couldn't cross the Arabian desert and walk straight to them. You would die. You had to go through the Levant. You went out the north of Israel to Damascus. You walked through the Fertile Crescent, came down through the north of Iraq into Assyria and to Babylon. That is how these two lands connected. So in their language, when the Jews were living in Israel, and when they wanted to talk about Mesopotamia in the east, they actually called it the north. Ah, interesting. You see, it wasn't the compass north. Like we think, oh, they got a compass in their hand or one north. Okay. Let's shoot this north. This is the North Pole. Is it the North Magnetic Pole? <laughs> is it, what north is it exactly? Well, it's the cultural north. Right. 
And so when you think of north, think of east, essentially, from Jerusalem directly, but via the north. And even today, the rabbis say, you know, that the enemies will come from the north. There's a great bad war that's going to happen from the north. This is the one they're talking about. Okay. And so you go east and you got Mesopotamia, you got Persia. If you go to the extreme east, you get into the stands, right? That's, that's kind of the extreme north. And when you go north up, you get into Syria and into, I would say, Turkey in Asia Minor, because so many of the tribes mentioned here lived in Asia Minor. Um, now, uh, some of these guys, you know, did go into the Russian steppes. I agree. Magog is mentioned um, by Herodotus, the Persian, uh, the Greek historian. Um, he wrote a book called The History of the Persians. And he talks about the Scythians and the Magogians interchangeably. He calls them, oh, the Magogians, and he changes the Scythians. So we see that to, to Herodotus, these, these warriors that lived in the northern steppes, you know, again, I, I think of, of Tajikistan, of Uzbekistan, and, you know, you could say Ukraine and Russia, but um, I, I'm, there are many ways you can crack open, like, you know, how far north do you want to go? Do you want to include them? And I'm going to get back to that because I'm seeing a pattern that I'm going to reveal uh, later in t- tonight. But I just want to continue to kind of look at these tribes. And just as far as Magog, yes, the Scythians. Uh, the, so you got, again, it points to the stands. It points to, you know, parts of Iran, parts of northern Iraq. It points to Asia Minor, which is now the stronghold of the Turks. It mentions the house of Tugurma. And then Persia. It mentions Persia. Now, what did Persia mean to the time of Ezekiel? Because today... Persia means Iran. If this is we're supposed to understand this is going to happen today, what countries would be here? Where well, you got northern Iraq, you got Turkey, you've got Iran, you've got the um, stands, you know, uh, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Afghanistan, um, Tur- Turkmenistan, very important to Gorma, as mentioned. Um, well, you you would have Persia. Now, what's Persia? Well, Persia, ironically, um, was also a connecting point, an empire that, that stretched from parts of India to the Mediterranean and the Aegean. And now what we're seeing is that suddenly through Iran, the, the newly formed, you know, there's, there's an attempt for Iran to integrate itself into the government of Afghanistan. And we're, we'll talk about this in detail in a moment when we open up the geopolitics. But as far as the lay of the land, I see also Persia is returning to its imperial territorial influence right now. Not officially, it doesn't have an empire like it did 2,500 years ago, but its influence is stretching from the mountains of Afghanistan to the Mediterranean and even the Aegean. It's, it's, it's like some sort of a charcoal under, uh, you know, that was fanned and the flames started to come up a little bit. It's as though there was a, there was a structure to this thing. And it's in some strange way, it's there and it just gets reignited. So in that sense, Persia that is mentioned in this prophecy could also be the influence, this thing that we're seeing Iran become, you know, it, that, that is, it's the whole, all the areas underneath it would then be Persia, um, whether it's the, south, uh, the Shia in the south of Iraq, and the two other countries, Kush and Put. Now, you mentioned North Africa, and I agree that I think that Put for sure is North Africa, and, and we'll talk about what's happening there, geopolitics, and Kush can be North Africa, but I believe it can also be the south of Iraq. So it can be also, then that's a lot of research I've done into Mesopotamia and ancient names. I think Kush can go both ways. 
Let me just jump in here, Allie. We need to take a quick time out. We'll come back and continue to discuss Ezekiel 38:39 with Ali Siadatan from Think Again Productions. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. To subscribe, just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Gain access to premium episodes. Again, go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Get Access to Premium Episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? If there's one thing money can't buy, it's sanity. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. And we are back with Ali Siadatan from Think Again Productions. We're discussing the prophecy in Ezekiel 38-39, which appears to be describing a major, major conflict in the Middle East. All right. In terms of the battle, though, all of these countries that you named, who are they? Are they all aligned against Israel? Okay. So that's where it gets interesting. When you say, okay, so great, so these are this is this region, what do these countries have in common and are they in a state of animosity against Israel for this to happen even? Yes. It just so happens that these countries are countries that have experienced the rise of political Islam. They have become, they have some of them have become theocracies like Iran and now like the, the Afghanistan, so the Islamic Republic of Iran, and now we have the Islamic Emirates of Afghanistan. Um, others are theocracies that are held back, like the influence of the Muslim Brotherhood as in Egypt, but it's held back in Turkey very much. The AK Party under Erdogan that's aligned with the Muslim Brotherhood has done a lot of Islamic reform to bring Islam more in the political sphere. So there's the Muslim Brotherhood uh, has tries to push out to become more like a theocracy, but it, then there is Hamas, which is the actual Muslim Brotherhood branch in the, among the Palestinians. But you have to understand these groups are not national groups. They're transnational groups because they are uh, about Islam, not about people, not about a boundary, not about a country. It's kind of like saying the church. You know, it's, it's, it's like saying the assembly of, of the faithful of a particular sect. Right. Or international communism. Or international communism. And so this battle, I think, could lead into the next battle that would involve them. The larger battle that's mentioned, Zechariah 14. We can talk about how this relates to the Battle of Armageddon in a moment. But to go deeper into geopolitics, so got, you've, got, you've, you've got the sphere of, of, of these you know, theocracies. So how are they kind of playing out? And why do I think some of the events lately may be you know, um, 
bringing this together. So I am at this point in my thinking, again, don't quote me like, this is the way it's going to go down. Ali said it. I am reasoning and thinking with the listeners and with you and with the Bible, prayfully. This is not like something that's nailed. But I think it's interesting that these countries that are mentioned here, I think that it's really mentioning a non-Arab Islamic war because we've had the immediate wars of 1948, like the Palestinians attacking and representing the Muslim Brotherhood, you know, that put them up to it. We've got Arab Islamic battles. We have Arab secular battles, like the ones that Nasser led, the 1967 war, 1973 war, 1956 war. But now what we see with the Arabs, we is there is or the Arab speakers, I should say, there is the Abrahamic Accords. There seems to have been some sort of a shift as though there is a fatigue in that right. sector. Whether the Sunnis have have uh, aligned an uneasy alliance, but an alliance with Israel as a as a countervailing measure against Shia Muslim uh, Muslims, well, they, they, Iran. They've done, it, they've done it as a countermeasure against the imperial aspirations of Iran. Right. So, so then in that sense, the the Muslim political Islamic wing of the Sunni world, there's two of them. There's the Muslim Brotherhood out of Egypt, and there is the Salafi Wahhabi guys in Iraq that launched the caliphate of Daesh or ISIL or ISIS, whatever you want to call it. They're, so those guys, they're one group, and they have this aspiration of a theocracy in the Middle East, but they are basically kept a little bit under wraps uh, by Saudi Arabia. They had a moment where they had their freak out recently. The Muslim Brotherhood, which is a Sunni organization that also seeks that kind of a political Islamic kind of you know world, uh, of a theocracy is a more sophisticated organization. It's more international and it, it knows how to present a face that looks very much suit and tie like Erdogan on the outside, but on the inside, it's furthering the goals of the theocracy. And so that's the Muslim Brotherhood. That's the second one. And that is God branches in Egypt in Turkey, in Qatar. Doha Qatar is a very much the Muslim Brotherhood. Like, Look at the stuff that was said on Al Jazeera in Arabic about Afghanistan. It was very different from Al Jazeera in English. And Al Jazeera in Arabic was basically congratulating the holy warriors that had taken over. And so that's the, the, the so we see that Hamas called in and congratulated the government of Afghanistan immediately. And that's Muslim Brotherhood among the Palestinians. So their office is in Doha, Qatar. That's where the Taliban have their official office, which is the one of the strongholds of the Muslim Brotherhood. Turkey accepted them. So we see that they align themselves suddenly with Muslim Brotherhood because the first Taliban guys, they were not aligned with the Muslim Brotherhood. They were aligned with the Salafis of Iraq, of, of uh, Arabia. That is who the original were. The original guys came from Arabia to fight the Soviets, Al-Qaeda. Right. That was the Northern Alliance, the Mujahideen. There was the Mujahideen. And then in the Mujahideen, which were from Afghanistan, came a group from Saudi Arabia. And that's how mm -hmm. bin Laden got there. Exactly. And, and those guys follow the Salafi school of Saudi Arabia, and they were the first Taliban. And they are the weakest of these fundamentalist groups that have this caliphate ambition. But the new Taliban, from the way they've received congratulations and from their offices in Qatar, they, are, they have shifted allegiances. They are not aligned with the Salafis of Arabia. They're aligned with the Muslim Brotherhood of Egypt. Therefore, they're aligned with a much more powerful and international, or at least interregional, but international, truthfully, organization. 
And that is where ISIS-K came from, who recently had these bombs in the airport. They are the old Taliban who feel the fact that these guys actually started to negotiate with the West through Trump when Trump invited them and they accepted. As far as these older Taliban guys are concerned, the Salafis from Arabia, these guys you know, basically sold out to the West the moment they accepted that invitation to become these international players. And that's why they separated themselves and now consider them to be, have become too liberal means that they're actually talking with the world. Yeah. So that is now, mind you, mind you, they may be considered too liberal, but they're still stoning female pilots and folk singers and hanging uh, Christians. I know, I know. When I heard that they were too liberal, I thought, what does that mean? They, they there's like a quota of how many people you behead. They're not meeting. Is it like, oh, you let the the girls walk around the house? Well, it, we don't even let them out of the room. Like, what is it exactly that made them more liberal? Until. I researched and I discovered it was exactly, it meant that they had accepted Trump's invitation to negotiate with the West. That is what made them now persona non grata among those older Salafi, Arabia rooted, you know. So these guys, this shift of power aligns this, creates now an alignment that goes possibly gradually now from these area of the stands, which I think very much is mentioned in this prophecy, all the way into the heartland of the Middle East with Egypt and uh, Gaza through the, and Turkey through the Muslim Brotherhood. There's a there's a, an alignment there. There is then Iran, the other country that would fit. So you got the stands, you've got Turkey, you've got the Muslim Brotherhood, which is in Gaza, but also you have these warriors in North Africa. They basically teach them in a lot of these African countries that if you don't want to stand up for the Palestinian cause which in this case means attack and destroy Israel, then you're not a real Muslim. And so from the South, you've got kind of foot soldiers. Now, they, just to finish the Sunni world, when it comes to Turkey and the Muslim Brotherhood, they say Erdogan has these ambitions to rebuild the Turkish Caliphate. That's fine. He's just Muslim Brotherhood. He has ambitions of an Islamic theocracy. So yes, he's in Turkey. So naturally it goes through the dream of the Caliphate, the way that Saddam Hussein built uh, printed coins with his name and Nebuchadnezzar's name on it, on the other side, the only king that ever destroyed Jerusalem from the Middle East. So um, they, each person can look into the history of their own neck of the woods, but the idea that Erdogan has in, is inspired from this Muslim Brotherhood of theocracy in the Middle East. And these guys are therefore fighting for Islam. They've got, you've got Turkey through the Muslim Brotherhood, you've got Egypt, you've got Gaza, you've got Qatar, and now you have this connection, it seems, that I'm watching with the Emirate of Afghanistan that will connect the Muslim Brotherhood to that part of the world. Then the other country mentioned is you know, Iran. Now, Iran has created a theocracy with a completely different tradition. But ultimately, ultimately, the goal of all of these, whether it's the Muslim Brotherhood or the Salafis in Arabia or the, or the Islamic Republic of Iran, their goal ultimately is to make Islam the universal religion of the world. That's what they're thriving for. They, they, I, what began with Muhammad um, in the seventh century of the Christian era must continue to go forward. It has paused since you know, General Allenby walked into the gates of Damascus and the Ottoman Empire fell, but it must continue. So that is their ultimate goal. The destruction of Israel is a task, you know, reading, leading to this ultimate goal. But as they kind of look out, so the Persian Republic is, is an Islamic Republic, meaning that the reason they don't care too much about their, 
the resources of the country or spending the money on the people or or having a national vision is because they have a theological vision. It's it's in their in the constitution. It's that the God has given authority, the supreme leader, to carry out the goals of this revolution. And a very important goal to the revolution is to liberate those who live under injustice and um, um, the, the downtrodden. And they're the, the warriors of the Shia Islam are going, are going to bring justice. So who are these downtrodden guys? Well, they're living under Marxism, under false Islam, and under imperialism, and of course, the most you know uh, problematic of all, under the Jewish rule, um, and that's the state of Israel. So the Palestinians. So the idea is to liberate all of these lands, the warriors of Iran, and then in the middle of all of these things, there's other ideas that I think may may be becoming more and more to the surface and relevant that I'm researching right now. But again, there is this idea of building a theocracy of challenging Israel. So the Muslim Brotherhood and the Shias are rivals, right? They each are fighting for, for the throne of the Islamic world and Salafis. These are the three rivals, but ultimately uh, they have common goals as well. So, so I find it interesting that Iran, which has integrated itself completely into the government of Iraq and basically controls the ground in Iraq, is now attempting to integrate itself into the government of Afghanistan. And if that happens, then I'm seeing through Hamas, through Qatar, which is an ally of Iran, and Hamas very much receives money from Iran. I'm seeing through Hamas, through Qatar, and through now Afghanistan, that this that the Shia Iranian IRGC clerical regime, theocratic system, and the Muslim Brotherhood are more and more intertwining in some ways, doing business at least, if not coming to some theological agreements that can unite them. And if that occurs, then I would see very much that the characters of this battle are coming together. And now they would need, of course, their leader, Gog. And where does he come from? Where he comes from, Magog. And that does seem to point to these you know, nomadic tribes of the Scythians that Herodotus mentioned. So are they living you know, in the Turkish region of Asia Minor? Are they living among the Russians, steppes? I don't think that the industrial powers, I think Russia and China would provide international backing for their own reasons. They have Security Council veto authority and they would be more the industrial patrons behind it. And that's why I'm seeing this more and more as a non-Arabic Islamic war. Fascinating. Um, and, yeah. and how does this relate to the Great War of Armageddon? Um, so... Asking myself that question, I find some verses in this uh, particular prophecy. So what are the qualities other than war? Uh, what happens here? Well, it says that, that uh, when, you know, they come and they, they gather around, God, in fact, you know, wants to judge them. He, God wants to get rid of a great evil from the world that no one is able to defeat. So God gathers this evil and puts them in a position of movement where now it's like a tree that has flowered. Now the ax is laid at the root of the tree and Israel as a servant of God acts as the ax that frees the earth from something that's maddening and dark and evil. And if this has been, this, this may end the jihadi movement. This may be the end of, that's when we go now into the more sophisticated 
political attacks and global attacks against Israel, which would be the next wars. But this one might end the whole Muslim holy warrior attempt section of the whole thing, because this would be really like, you know, the climax of it. So when they come and they're defeated, it says that, that the house of Israel will bury them for seven months in order to cleanse the land. And then it says that um, men will be continually set apart to travel through the land and bury the travelers remaining on the face of the land. So bodies remaining in order to cleanse it. And at the end of the seven months, they will make their search. When they travel through the land, if any sees a man's bones, he will set up a sign. You can't touch it until the barriers have buried it in the valley of Hamongog, the valley of Gog Hamona will also be the name of the city, so they will cleanse the land. So it's a valley there that will be called forever, like the Valley of Hamun Gog. This is where this whole Gog fell. Now, when I look at this idea of a seven-month you know, burial and the fact that some bones remain, and obviously they're radioactive, so there might be something slightly nuclear about this. You can't touch it. You see the bones. You have to call these guys, the specialists, to come to bury it. This doesn't sound to me like the Messianic kingdom of Yeshua Mashiach, of Jesus Christ. This doesn't sound to me like that. This doesn't sound the 1,000-year rule where Jesus and his angels and, and God is present on earth. This sounds still like the world of men. You know, you've got to have these protocols. You've got to take time to cleanse this thing. You've got to bury it for seven months. I feel the one who brought the dead back to life and turned, you know, the water into um, wine or the water into blood in, 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 in the Nile can also like, you know, cleanse this land. You know, they got the technology, the, whatever they need. So that's why I feel like this is a distinct battle. That's where I stand now. I've, and I've thought about this many times. I feel this is a distinct battle from the battle of Armageddon. And I think thematically, it is an echo of Armageddon. There are overlaps. Uh, nations are brought, they're judged in the valley. And that's what we see in the valley of Armageddon. But that battle includes, I think, the industrial nations and China. That's the difference. We're going from the epicenter, first the Arabs, then the non-Arabic Islamic world like Iran and Turkey and the, and the, and the stands and North Africa. And, and then we've got the, the, the industrial powers and China. So in a way, the story of Israel is the story of three wars. You know, uh, the First World War opened the door for the land repopulated. The Second World War gave birth to the nation. The third one brings in the Messiah and establishes the kingdom. All right. But so the what's that, there are these minor wars of which this is the most major one. Right. The most major of the minors. <laughs> yeah. What what so how how what is the outcome of this uh, regional conflict? Well, there's there's a there's a few things, uh, and and the outcome. So there's two outcomes. One, well, how will Israel? What will be the outcome in Israel, and what will be the outcome for the world? And before I answer that question, I feel compelled to point to just one verse that I find very interesting. It says, "You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth," which is an echo again of the of the Battle of Armageddon, as rams, lambs, goats, bulls of all of the fatlings. Of Bashan, the fatlings of Bashan will be will be ready in this battle, and I find that interesting because that was the place where the Nephilim lived in Israel, the Bashan, where the two kings, you know, that fell, Og, which strangely sounds a lot like Gog, like I'd say Gog is Og's brother, 
And then you've got Sihon, the two Nephilim kings. They were from the region of Bashan, where the region where um, the fallen angels landed before the flood the, in the book of Enoch, this great mountain that's in the north of Israel. This, that region is also, and, and we see these bulls of Bashan, these fatlings are called here, but we see in Psalm 22 that the bulls of Bashan surround the cross as the Lord is being sacrificed, which again is a point to his Nephilim enemies who are present also at the cross. And so I think that this, these, there is Nephilim in this battle, and maybe Gog himself is one. And that's why I think the Bible, which doesn't spare any words, has brought our attention to the fatlings of Bashan in the context of this war. And, and so that's important to know. Now, what are the outcomes? Well, that's a great question. So first, let's start with Israel. It seems that this is an overwhelming event, an overwhelming battle. And I think that Israel is calling upon God for protection. And so God says, I will put my glory among the nations. All the nations will see my judgment that I will execute in my hand that I will lay on them. The house of Israel will know that I am Adonai, their God, from that day onward. The nations will know that the house of Israel went into exile for their iniquity because they broke faith with me. So I hide my face from them and gave them into the hand of their enemies. All of them fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions. I hid my face from them. Therefore, thus says Adonai Elohim, the Lord God, now I will restore Jacob from the exile. When I have compassion on the house of Israel, I will be zealous for my holy name. They will bear their shame and all their disloyalty by which they broke faith with me when they were living securely in their land with no one making them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples, and have gathered them out of their enemies' lands. I will be sanctified, set aside in them, in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord, their God, since it was I who caused them to go into exile among the nations, and I who will gather them back to their own land. I will never again leave them there. I will never again hide my face from them, for I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel. It's a declaration of the Lord. So Israel has clearly a spiritual revival a major spiritual revival as they recognize the, the fact that, you know, God, you know, I guess did this miraculous victory like 1967 and they are praying and calling upon him and God is revealing himself to them. He's actually responding. He, the time of, of blindness and seclusion that Israel went through for the nations to receive the sight from God and receive the Lord, that time seems to be drawing to a close. And God responds and, and opens the eyes of Israel and they know him and he knows them. So there's, there's a major spiritual revival described here, which is also spoken about in other places in the Bible, like as early as the writings of Moses that concerning this time. And it kind of ties into the Valley of the Dry Bones we talked about where the dead bones are slowly being brought back to life. The flesh is given, the spirit is given. Now it says the nations will, be, will see God and God will be glorified in Israel in the eyes of the nations. And that, I think, reminds me again of the 1967 war, which was seen as a miraculous victory by the Judeo-Christian world. And the Islamic world thought, oh, well, we lost because, or at least the clerics said we lost because the leaders of the battle were seculars like Nasser. And we have to you know, first Islamicize and attack under the banner of Allah, which is actually what I think this battle is about, Ezekiel 38-39. It's, it's like the consequence of how it affected the Islamic world, the 1967 war. 
how it affected the Islamic world. It brought it, it you know, this idea of Islamicized first and fighting uh, through that, I think leads to this war, you know. And now this war, I think, is a mirror. Now, if the jihadis come and they lose, well, their belief is that the only way they could lose if, is if the God of Israel is greater than their God. And since that's not, that's why when they throw all these missiles over Israel, and Israel shoots them down, why does the supreme leader of Iran go and say, we won a great victory? Because in the jihad mentality, of course, the battle will be, you know, Allah's and those who represent him. This is not a battle you lose. So he has to declare victory. Whatever, somehow this served Allah. That's their, per, that's their perspective. We did what we had to do in certain somehow. Maybe created terror, maybe it moved some wheels we don't even see behind the scenes, but it did, did what it was supposed to do. In this case, if the defeat happens, then this creates a theological problem for these most fervent of Muslim types. Wait a second, is the God of Israel greater? And of course, the people in the larger Muslim world who may be watching this also will go, wow, God is with Israel. So I think there is this glorification of God, the God of Israel, through the story in the sight of people all around the world. Doesn't have to be some president, doesn't have to get up and say, wow, I can't believe what we just saw, just in the hearts and minds of people. So there's a general glorification of God, starting with the Jewish people in the revival, and then it pours into the other, into the rest of it. So that's one aspect of how this will affect the world. Spiritually, spiritually, you know, God, there's a God is revealing himself and something dark and evil is being judged and removed. Does that mean that, that millions and millions of Muslims will then convert? It could very much weaken Islam to that extent, yes. Because that has already started. We see a massive you know, awakening in the Muslim world led by Iran towards who Jesus is. And I think that we might see the fall of theocracies, especially Iran would definitely fall. And, and, and this freedom and maybe more of a momentum in that direction and away from Islam. This might be the end of what Muhammad began very well in the seventh century, you know, it might considerably weaken that. Doesn't mean that these guys won't be here to partake in the final battle as foot soldiers of some kind, but I think this this does put a dent into 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 Islam. Yes. All right. Um, then what's the other kind of outcome of this from the worldly point of view? I think this is this is my theory. Again, don't quote on me. Don't quote me on this. This is just a theory. This is the ideal situation, the ideal chaos. You know, the, 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 the Masons, the Illuminati, these guys, they love the whole at chaos order, at cha out of chaos comes order. Like the brown shirts, you know, oh, well, don't worry. Uh, me and the Gestapo will clean up the brown shirts. Yes, fine. But then through it, you will rule Germany with an iron fist. So it's like, it's like, why is it that under democratic rule, under, you know, Fabian socialism, under Marxism, communism, globalism, the Islamic groups breathe easier. You know, since Biden has taken over, since this Congress has taken over, we see that the Supreme Leader of Iran felt compelled to sell it, say to Hamas, start shooting 6,000 rockets. we got money, we can replenish it, everything's flowing. He didn't fear, you know, he had to wait for Trump to leave. He didn't fear, you know, any, any kind of retribution. And, and America just sat on the sidelines and said everyone should calm down. That's all he said after a few days. And now we see the rise of an Islamic emirate in Afghanistan. So clearly these Islamist movements breathe better under this, you know, Marxist uh, kind of paradigm. Why? Well, obviously, perhaps they see them as foot soldiers. Let them do the dirty job. If they can finish them off, great. If not, at least we can capitalize on the chaos that this will create. 
So I think this is a great opportunity for the final war leader to step in to the stage of history as a peacemaker. The end of this war, you know, might be something that leads immediately or, or, or non immediately, but things are set into motion that require for him to, like, maybe there's a coalition, there's a new world order that is negotiated into place. And this was enough of a chaos that we need a better world order. So, and then this guy maybe is the peacemaker. He comes on the stage of, the, of, of history and he's like, oh, this has got to end. And he's the one that then negotiates the peace with Israel and the neighbors because this is the time. And there are prophecies about such a deal in, in that people read in scripture. And so this may very much lead to the rise of the final world leader, the Antichrist, which then would rally the world against Israel the way it's described in another passage for another evening, which is Zechariah chapter 14, which seems to suggest a much larger and global war through, and that is when only the Messiah will have to descend with the angels to stop that one. He, it will require God personally to be here. So this may set up the stage for the final act. All right, well, We'll leave the final act for another time. Ezekiel 38, 39, fantastic job, Ali. Thank you so much. Thinkagainproductions.com. We can sign up there for a newsletter. We can access your YouTube channel. We can watch UFOs, Angels, and Gods. There are many other videos on YouTube you can watch with that. And then there's more coming. I think you've covered it. And if you just Google my name, there's tons of interviews you can listen to about all kinds of topics. At thinkagainproductions.com, sign up for the newsletter. And you can sign, and you can also support me on my Patreon page, and and just I'll, I put up stuff there with the Patreons. You can support me donations, and we need that to produce new things. Fantastic, Ali. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.